This morning, as we've already noted, we're beginning the season of Advent as part of our worship. Advent comes from a Latin word meaning arrival. In the early centuries of the church, Advent began to be celebrated as a time of preparation for the coming of Christmas. So we're going to take a break from our sermons in the Gospel of Mark for the next few weeks in order to focus our thoughts on preparing uh, for Christmas, and we'll look at some of the writings of the Apostle John uh, in our sermons over the next few weeks. How do we prepare for Christmas? In our culture, of course, we buy gifts and we get overwhelmed about Christmas cards and holiday parties and all of the rest that goes along with it, the setting up of the Christmas tree and all of the decorations. Advent, Advent, as we celebrate it in the church, is needed for us to focus and to consider more deeply the meaning of our celebration. Advent is, for us, a warm-up for our hearts, a time of preparation It sounds like, as I talk about it, another thing to add to your to-do list, and I don't mean it like that. This is the way I mean it. I mean it as part of our mission of our church, is to help us all think for a few minutes in our sermons and in our worship over the next few weeks about the stunning event that is Christmas, about this holiday and what it really means. And the historic Christian church of every stripe, of every denomination, of every age, every place, has been committed to these two great miracles, to the miracle of Christmas and to the miracle of Easter. There are more miracles, of course, that we read about in the Bible, but without the birth of Christ and without the resurrection of Christ, the church would have never gotten out of the first century. It wouldn't have existed. And so as we ponder those two miracles this morning, Christmas actually might be the one that's even harder to believe, if you really think about it. How does God inhabit a person. How does that work, right? What is divine and what is human, and how do they coexist, and how do they, do they mix together? Do they, are they separated? How does that really work? Our passage this morning doesn't give us all of the answers, because simply we couldn't really understand it all anyway, right? I mean, God's ways are full of mystery, And if we could understand everything that he did perfectly, then he wouldn't be God and we wouldn't be his finite human creatures, right? But the Apostle John is writing as an eyewitness and inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's introducing us to the Christmas story in our passage this morning. Familiar words from John chapter 1. If you would like to read with me, it's on page 750 in the Pew Bible. As well, of course, in your bulletin, there's a sermon outline Um, That's in the middle there on pages 10 and 11. This is God's word for us. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words that you have spoken that have been written down and preserved for us to read these many, many centuries later. And we thank you that, we, uh, that you are still speaking to us as your people. We pray now in these next few minutes that you would give us insight into your word, that you would help us to understand, and that you would help us to apply the things that we learn to our lives, that we would be changed as we meet with you this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few months in our sermon series, we've been seeing how Mark has introduced Jesus to us. Jesus bursts, in, in Mark's gospel, Jesus bursts onto the scene, right? Large crowds gather, he does miracles, he heals people, he declares that the kingdom of God is at hand. He gets into a lot of trouble with the religious authorities of his day right away. John is giving us a very different approach in introducing us to Jesus, It's great that we have four gospel writers, isn't it? Because they all say something of the same story, and yet they say it in different ways, and they say it in their own personalities, and they say it to different audiences in a way that we get an even greater picture of who Jesus is. So John introduces us to Jesus in a different way in his prologue, and his prologue shows us some of the great themes that will be carried all through his gospel the themes about Jesus, the themes about, and these concepts about light, and about life, and about glory, and about truth, and about how Jesus was rejected by his own, and how people didn't recognize him. And all of the themes that we just have read in the first 14 verses there are themes that will be expanded, many of them throughout the rest of the story. John wants us to see these concepts are coming together in Jesus from the very beginning, Of his book. But John also wants to speak into the culture of his day, into the first century Hellenistic world that was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy from the days of Aristotle and Plato and further developments from Athens and Rome and the developments of all kinds of different schools of philosophy were important in the centuries for the for that culture leading up to Jesus' birth. So in order to speak to his audience, John uses some of their terms with a significant twist in order to speak about Jesus. So we have to learn a little bit of their worldview in order to understand the message for us today. I'm afraid that this gets sort of philosophical. Try to bear with me. Because John's being very philosophical here. And so if we want to understand what he's doing, we have to to understand um, who his audience is, and then we can understand what it means to us and how to apply it today. So it's like, the, what John is doing is like if you were trying to speak to people today and, about Jesus, and you wanted to use their language, you wanted to, to say it in ways that they would understand, and you might try to use an analogy. It's like if you wanted to explain Jesus' power, you might say, well, he's kind of like the president, right? Not any current president, or not, you know, particular president, but like the office of the president, right? Like he's the most powerful person in our country. He's the commander-in-chief. He's the leader of our nation's military forces. He says things and people have to do it. Jesus has that kind of power. But 
you couldn't just say Jesus is the president, right? You'd have to explain, but, you know, he's not elected by popular vote, and he doesn't really have term limits or checks and balances, and his forces are spiritual, not earthly, and he's really actually good for the people and the country, and he doesn't have a selfish agenda, and, right? You would have to, you'd have to qualify what you mean by saying the word president and applying it to Jesus. You're taking a familiar concept that means something to us as 21st century Americans today and trying to re-explain it to show, give the content of it. This is what Jesus is like and how he is like a president, but how in many ways he's very different. That's what John is doing here. He begins with this idea of the word, and the Greek word is, is logos, as he was writing in Greek, and, sh- and of course that's a word that's found its way into much of our English vocabulary as a root word for all kinds of other words, but it was a significant concept for the people in the first century and in the centuries before, actually. Uh, scholars have killed a lot of trees nuancing how logos was understood by the various schools of Greek philosophy, how it was developed as a concept by the people over the ages. I was trying to read uh, one of my dictionaries that has a it's a dictionary of Greek New Testament terms. I was trying to read the entry on Logos, and it was like 30 pages or 40 pages or something. So I gave up. You're getting the Cliff Notes condensed version, right? For the Stoics, the Logos was the ordered nature of the world. It was the guiding principle. It was something like their God, but it was rational. It was impersonal, kind of like a force that makes things happen. For other philosophical groups, the Logos described a kind of philosophical ideal world of which the, the world, the physical world that we live in is, is like a copy or kind of a shadow. The Old Testament, as it's being translated into Greek, comes in and, and begins to use some of the same concepts, but the ideas from the Old Testament are different. The word of God in the Old Testament is a word not coming from itself, but it's a word coming from another source. By his word, God was doing things in history. By his word, he was expressing who he was to his people. By his words, he was revealing himself. He was saving. He was judging all of these things. And so these concepts are very different, but the Old Testament during these centuries leading up to Jesus' arrival is being translated into Greek, and so, they, so these ideas about this concept of logos and how it relates to God, the God of the, the, of the Israelites, the Hebrew God, uh, are begin to kind of come together. And so the New Testament continues this trend and really brings it to completion from a Christian perspective. As we read the New Testament, we see emphasized over and over again this idea that the words, the, the logos, Logoi, if you want to use the plural, right? The words of Jesus are powerful and they're effective. They're like the words of God in the Old Testament. With the word, Jesus heals people. With the word, Jesus casts out demons. With the word, Jesus is teaching the truth about himself and about God. And the prologue of, prologue of John here is actually taking it a step further than anywhere else in the Gospels because here Jesus is the word. Jesus is the, the Logos. He's the, this thing that has this huge background of Greek philosophy behind it. And so John is going to spend these verses filling in the concept 
and explaining to us what it means that it's not just that Jesus is speaking, but that Jesus is spoken into our world. Well, how does John begin to fill in the idea here? How does he paint the picture of this being, this principle, this force, this reality, right? Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. First John tells us that the Word was there from the beginning. Before everything was made, before anything was made, the Word was present. And there's, of course, nothing for the Greek philosophers to argue with there. They would have agreed the Logos has always been in existence. It was always there. And John then kind of takes it a step further to say this idea that the Logos and Theos and God are actually distinct. The Word was with God. They're together, but distinct. They're different persons. They're different entities. And the Word was God. Right? This adds a layer of complication. The Word was God. The Word was divine. The Word shared attributes of Godness. And the way that the sentence is actually put together, it would read, it emphasizes the Word God, as in the Word was God, is the way it would have read to uh, someone reading it in the first century. It's a crucial step in our understanding of the Trinity. One commentator wrote it like this, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. And yet, again, the word isn't the same thing as God. They're not completely overlapping. They're not two names for the same being. No, there's a distinction between the two. Next, John tells us that the Word is the active agent in the creation of everything. In verse 3, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And skipping down to verse 10, He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. Everything was made through or by or in the Word. And nothing was made without the Word. You can't describe it more comprehensively than that, right? Everything was made with him. Nothing was made without him. It's that simple, according to John's perspective. And verse 10 also gives us this irony, right? The word made the world, but the world didn't understand. The world didn't recognize him. It's interesting in light of the story of creation that Phil read earlier, because Genesis is telling us that God said, and it was so. The writer of Genesis is using the same metaphor of speaking to describe how God created by his words, which is, in this uh, explanation here, which is the word, which is Jesus. The next chunk, as we go through our passage, we see that John is describing a bit of the role of John the Baptist here and testifying about the word and his presence, but, but woven into the section are the he begins to fill in some of the characteristics of the Word. What is this Logos like? The Word is the source of life, which is light to everyone. In verse 4, In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. 
He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. The word gives life. It's such a simple idea that John will expand upon throughout his gospel, right? That life is to know God, that eternal life is offered to those who believe in Jesus. And this life is connected with light. Light and darkness are such sort of common ideas that we don't really think about them, perhaps, but light has really important physical characteristics, doesn't it? Light brings clarity. Light guides and directs. Light shows us what's there. Light makes things grow. And the smallest light can change everything. And complete darkness is completely disorienting, isn't it? I remember the memory from my childhood in which we were in a, we went on a tour and we were in a cave. I think it was when we were in like, I was in like eighth grade and we went to Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. And on the tour, there was a time that they, that they take you into this room, and I don't know if any of you have been to Carlsbad Caverns, but as I remember, there, it's, you know, this enormous room. I mean, just absolutely unbelievably large, this cavern that's under the ground. And the, at, at part of the tour, they say, you know, st- stand there for a minute, don't move, we're going to turn on the lights, we're going to turn off all the lights, and we're going to show you what it would have been like to, for the first explorers when they first found this, this cavern and what happened when their lights went out. And so they turned out the lights. I don't know if they do this anymore. It sounds kind of dangerous as I described it, as I was thinking about. But they turned off the lights, and it was really weird. You couldn't see anything at all. It, did, it doesn't matter how long you stood there trying to get your eyes to adjust. It was like your eyes weren't open. There was nothing that you could do to give yourself any kind of visual input. I mean, it was just, it was overpowering. I don't know if any of you have had an experience like that, but I remember it so vividly from so long ago because it was this all-encompassing sense of no matter what I did, no matter where, where I looked, no matter, I couldn't see my hand in front of me. I couldn't see anything. But after a few minutes... If someone were to have made the tiniest light, it would have been visible from the top of the cavern. It would have been visible for so far away, right? It would have seemed bright, and it would have made a huge difference. It would have completely let you reorient. The Bible speaks in this kind of way about light and darkness. and describes, uses these terms to describe spiritual truths. The physical characteristics of light tell us about the spiritual nature of the word. In the Bible, light is good. Darkness is evil. Light shines into the darkness, and the darkness doesn't like it. Sin and evil are like, they like to be hidden. They like to stay hidden. The word is the source of life, which is light to a dark world, to a world that's disoriented. There is light that's shining in, that guides, that helps, that lets us to see. The Word is also the source of sonship, as John describes it here in verse 12. Yet to all who received him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. One's relationship to the word speaks of one's inclusion into the family of God. It's the image of adoption, this idea of gaining the status of a son or daughter in God's family. That, that meant something to a Roman audience. It's, you know, it's the, described as sonship, but it's son, it could be applied to son or daughter. Right? But there was this status in the Roman world of being adopted, of being taken into like a, a patron, taking you into their family. And it had all of these um, rights that were attached to it. And we have some of the same ideas in adoption the way we describe it today, the way that, that, that children are taken into a family and they can't be kicked out again. Right? They're adopted. They're permanently a part of the family. And this image here is that this, is, this becoming children of God is a new birth, as, as uh, John will describe it in chapter 3. You must be born again, not as a decision of your parents, not as something of human agency, but because of God, because of what God does. The Word gives us the right to be adopted as the children of God. So far, so good, basically, as John is describing the Word and the Logos. A lot of the philosophers probably would have understood, would have kind of been tracking, at least with what he said. He's filling in the character of the concepts with this content about Jesus. But in verse 14, something really stunning happens. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. The Greek background would never have allowed for this to happen because in their view, the divine logos was up here and was not connected to the world. It was sort of a dualistic view, like that the material is bad and evil and the spiritual is good and pure, and the two could never really connect. Never could the Word take on flesh and become a person. It couldn't embody that. It couldn't turn into a person. And so John brings this shocking reality of Christmas in here in this verse. In a dramatic event, what was otherworldly is now of this world. The divine logos has somehow entered the world. And this is the great mystery of Christmas, isn't it? The Old Testament gives us this picture of the dangerous holiness of God, right? In the Old Testament, we see this picture again and again of how... uh, People had to come in God's presence according to his rules. The priests had to do certain things. There had to be sacrifices made for the forgiveness of sins and a long list of things to, to, for God to declare to his people that they would understand that he's holy, that he's not to be trifled with, that you can't just approach him however you want to, that, he and, that God and sin are incompatible, right? That God dwells in this kind of inapproachable light. And so he spoke to his people using pictures of the tabernacle and the temple and all of these rituals and sacrifices so that they would see that God's holiness is actually dangerous to them. They would see their own sinfulness and see that, that God isn't messing around here. And we read stories of people in the Old Testament who took God lightly and they died. 
because God wanted to show us that he's not compatible with sin and that he's serious about what he's saying. And yet the Bible also speaks so clearly that God is close to the brokenhearted, that God hears the cries of his people, that God isn't distant, that God isn't far off and removed from his creation, that God doesn't just wind up the world and take off his hands and let it go and walk away. Rather, God is intimately involved in the creation and in the lives of his people, despite our sinfulness and the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our own lives. And how is this possible? Supremely here, it's possible because the word became flesh. The word became like us, one of us. This supreme expression of God speaking to his world. The writer of Hebrews puts it in this way. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. The writer is saying, the prophets spoke God's words. The creation speaks the glory of God. But now God has spoken by sending his son. He's the ultimate expression of himself. This is a bad analogy, but it sort of works. It may be a bit like if you had, I don't know if they still make these. When I was a kid, they had those ant farms, right? They had two pieces of glass, and then you put dirt in between it, and then you put ants in it. And the ants, like, will build a little colony, and you can see their, their, you can see them working. You can see them making little trails in the dirt, right? So imagine if you had an ant farm, and you loved your ants, and you wanted to speak to your ants, right? How would you do it? Well, one way, maybe, could you become an ant? Could you move into the farm and teach them stuff about the world outside, right? That the world that they can't see or imagine, the world beyond their two little glass panes. Could you tell them about the reality of the world around them? Could you bring light to these ants that were living in darkness and unable to see what was the bigger picture of the world around them? The greatest revealing of God is the Son. As Jesus said, multiple ways and multiple times, like if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The things I do, the Father tells me to do. God has made himself known in a real and historical person who lived in the flesh, just like us, except, of course, without sin. And so in this one-time and permanent event, the divine nature came into humanity. And so from that point on, Jesus has a human body. And he didn't have one before. And he will always have one. And now his body, after the resurrection, is glorified and changed and indestructible. But he still has the scars of his suffering and his death for us. And that will never change in all eternity. God Jesus has been made like us. And then we get the great promise that at the resurrection of the dead, we will be made like him. That we will have glorious and indestructible 
and amazing, changed, glorified bodies for all who believe in him. This all is a great mystery, isn't it? I was working on this sermon. It's it's hard to... (laughs) How do you describe it? The Bible, it's... We can't understand, of course, how all of it works, but the Bible doesn't make sense without it. And this is what the church throughout its history has always struggled to articulate in human words. And there have been a lot of controversies over the centuries to try to describe this nature of Christ and how God becomes human and all of this stuff. To try to describe it in human words has always been a struggle. And yet, the church has always believed it because the Bible teaches it. The incarnation, right? That means the flesh taking on of the Son of God is one of the great miracles and one of the great mysteries of the universe. So it's important for us to understand it. This is vital to our Christian message. It's different than many other religions and what they teach about how their God interacts with the world, right? And we have to learn about Jesus and about the Word about who he is as John is introducing to him, him to us in this way. But, of course, we have to ask the question as well, what difference does it make for us today? As we reflect on the passage, it, we need to take time to consider what does it mean? And the question is really about the very nature of Christmas itself. Why do we celebrate it? What do we really get? What life-changing and world-changing news is contained here in this in this story, in this event. I've got just a few thoughts to share. One, first, let's consider that there's great power in the picture of God moving near to a world that's in rebellion against him, right? The person becoming an ant, right? To come live with the ants and to tell the ants about the reality beyond their ant farm. And even more, right, this one was persecuted and disbelieved. And he came to give up his life to save others. Because we could never separate Christmas from Good Friday and Easter. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to obey his Father perfectly. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That the world could be reconciled to God. And that was costly. God could not and would not abandon his creation, even when we persecuted his son, even when we didn't listen to his prophets. Jesus moved towards the world with great love and with kindness and mercy and grace to give life, to give light, that we could be adopted into God's family by faith. And so as we reflect on our own stories, we have, I think this gives us Is it a foundation? Is it a banner? Is it something over us that says, in the midst of our lives, we can have confidence and assurance that the Savior who moved to his people is still moving to us. He's still seeking us out. He's still teaching us. He's still giving us life and light in the midst of our days of struggle and ease and joy and sorrow and all of the things that are going on in our lives, like sort of a foundation that we see in the Christmas story is that God has moved towards us in sending Jesus, and that changes everything. And that we can see that there's a path of God to fix a broken world. And we don't see everything fixed yet, but one day we will. And we believe it by faith. 
So that's something for us to reflect upon and to have confidence in and to put as, as a foundation for life or a banner over our heads or however, however you could imagine it. Christmas means something about God in relation to his world. It's profound. Second, consider the power of the image of the word spoken. There are a few instances in our lives when our speech actually creates reality. Right? When the minister says, I now pronounce you man and wife, right? that's the point. By the word spoken, the action is, uh, is, is recognized. Is, is real. And so, by the utterance of words, the outcome is achieved, right? So, sort of, um, Lisa Ziga was telling me about this, about, like, philosophy of language and speech act theory. These are called performative utterances. And by, by what you're saying, like, the event is happening, like, you're under arrest, right? By saying that, you're under arrest, right? This meeting is adjourned. By saying this meeting is adjourned, the meeting is adjourned. War is declared. I do give and bequeath this item to you, right? All of these other examples show us this idea of the power of words. That there are instances that we speak about, and we speak about every day, in which we're, our words are creating reality. Our words are actually making something happen. And so, it's powerful, isn't it? For God, that's even more the case, Right? That God is using words to create reality. That Jesus, the Word, the Logos, brings the reality of himself into the world. He's the speaker. He's also the result of the speaking. And it's interesting that, I mean, I don't know. It's hard for me to get my head around this, right? To, to recognize the amazing thing that happened at Christmas. So, I want to listen to those words. Right? He's still speaking to his people. He's still, still speaking into his word, his world. Are we listening? Read the Christmas story again this Advent. Luke tells it. Matthew tells it. Read it again. It's familiar if you've been in church for a while. But then read it again. And listen to the miracle. And ponder the stunning action of God arriving as a human in fulfillment of ancient prophecies. His people had been waiting for centuries for him to come, for the Messiah to come, for God to do something, to speak to his people. He spoke to them in a way that they never would have expected, in a sense, right? The word became flesh and dwelled among us. One sort of even more practical application for us to consider this morning is to really think about our own words, right? There's power in our words, too, because we're made in the image of God in that way. And words can create and enforce reality. Words can make things happen for good or for bad. We can harm with our words very easily. We can be a great encouragement with our words. And so consider this Christmas season how to use the power of your words to be a blessing to those around you. Consider what it would look like for us to hold our tongues and to use our words with care. It's hard to do. At least for me, it's hard to do. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to be patient with words. It's hard to hold them in when they want to come out. Right? 
But that's, but that's something for us to think about. It's a very practical application for us to think about. This big picture idea that the word, that God is speaking, we're also speaking. And we have an opportunity to use our words uh, in, in powerful and effective ways in the lives of, of people around us. So in conclusion, this Advent season, remember, the word became flesh. This is good news for you. It's good news for our world. God has spoken in his Son. The ultimate expression of God has arrived in earth. Jesus has come. And so we have this great hope in all of our days, in the midst of our broken world, and our broken lives, that there's a Savior, there's a solution, that our lives can be mended, that he's come for us, he's come near to us. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning for how clearly you have spoken. There's no doubt as we read these words that you have engaged with our world in a profound and amazing way. Jesus, we thank you for coming to be one of us. That we could see the Father in all that you did. We thank you for walking the path of obedience, that you were successful when all of the rest of us have failed. And we thank you, Jesus, for coming that, that we could be saved, that our lives could be fixed and mended ultimately and permanently, that we could be adopted into your family. Thank you for bringing us light in life. We do pray that you would help us this Advent season to, to be able to pause um, amidst all of the busyness and to be able to reflect on what it means that we're celebrating this, uh, this great event for this season. Be with your church as we, as we celebrate. Help us to be an encouragement with our words to all of those around us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.